Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Tully Show. I'm very excited. I've been looking forward to speaking to sports writer and author Chris Herring ever since I heard his book was coming out months and months ago. If you're an NBA fan, this is a no-brainer. Even if you're not, there was something about this 1990s New York Knicks team that it's it's almost like a Shakespearean story, the way their saga unfolded. Hopefully something in this episode for everyone. There's certainly, watch this segue, something for everyone at my Patreon. Just a couple days ago, I spent over an hour talking about Fraggle Rock and Nazi war criminals and a bunch of other notable newsworthy events from the year that was 1983. How exciting is that? That's just one of several billion podcasts that are waiting for you to hear exclusively at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Say it with me patreon.com slash Mike Tully. See you there. Thanks and enjoy the show. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a senior writer at Sports Illustrated and the author of a new book entitled Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. Hello and welcome, Chris Harry. Oh, well, I appreciate it. Thank you. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. I, I listen to Zach Lowe's podcast all the time. I enjoy you on his show. And from the moment that he mentioned, you know, I don't need to tell you how excited he has been about your <laughs> your book. From the moment that he mentioned it, I've been looking for, I, I bookmarked this as something that I wanted to talk about on the show. You're from, you are from the Midwest originally? I'm from Chicago. Yeah. So you, you wrote a book about the New York Knicks. Can you describe your relationship with the Knicks, specifically this Knicks team of the 1990s? There, there was none. Um, I was four when they hired Pat Riley, you know, and was from Chicago. And um, I think most kids that grew up during the Jordan era were fans of Michael Jordan and the Bulls, which was not any different with me. Um, but I was not really of an age to fully absorb what was happening um, really until their second three-peat. Um, if you told me as a kid that, you know, the Bulls really don't like the Knicks, the Knicks really don't like the Bulls, I, you know, I, I didn't really absorb that part of it. I just knew, oh, the Bulls are our team here, and we get to have, you know, parades every year for them winning a championship <laughs> in the city. That's an annual thing, right? Some people have St. Patrick's Day parades. We do NBA championship parades. Right. So, you know, and there were a couple of years in there where it's like, oh, we, we don't have them this year. And it was, you know, it was just because Michael was playing baseball. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that that was my recollection, if I even had one. I really wasn't of an age until really, I would say probably their, probably like their fifth title was when I was like in a place where I could start to understand it. But by that time, the Knicks and the Bulls didn't really have the same rivalry at that point. They played each other every year for, I guess it was four years in a row. Um, I'm trying to think, was it for 91, certainly 92, 93, 94. And then they played each other again in 96. Uh, so they played each other five times in six years in the playoffs. Um, I started becoming a fan like, of the Bulls probably where I could understand and absorb 
who their good players were and the stuff outside of Michael Jordan really in like 97. So like really there's, there's second to last title. And then their last title, I started to understand it more. And by that time they weren't playing the Knicks in the playoffs. So I didn't really absorb that part of it. So I didn't have like a built-in hatred for the Knicks. I guess I had a built-in fandom for the Bulls, but you know, whether I was really a, a loyalist to death at that point, probably not because the Bulls were really horrible after they lost Michael Jordan. So, you know, I was not along for that ride. I, I didn't really want to watch them, you know, when they went to high schoolers instead of Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. Uh, so that was my relationship at that point. I was too young to really understand it or absorb it. Um, certainly from the Knicks perspective, even really from the Bulls perspective. Um, and if I'm being honest, the way the book came along, my relationship with the Knicks, as much as there is one, is that I covered them when I got out of uh, college and started working at the Wall Street Journal covered news for a couple of years. And then they essentially orchestrated a trade. They traded me into the sports section for a news reporter um, to make a sports reporter, a news reporter instead. Um, I covered football for one year and then they asked me to cover the Knicks the second year that I was in the sports section. And, you know, I was 25, start covering the Knicks for the wall street journal and tried to take a different approach toward the way I wrote about them and developed, you know, a pretty loyal base of readers and, supporters and you know there are people even within the team that really liked the way I wrote just because it was kind of a different approach to writing about them it wasn't um you know the Knicks were horrible for years it was not just skewering them all the time it was not being soft on them it was certainly critical but it it was critical with kind of a numerical approach and you know and I watched a lot of film and would watch a lot of games so people kind of came to respect my work just because it was different than what the other people on the beat were doing and with that in mind, I think there were book publishers that were kind of interested with how bad the Knicks have been for the last 20 years, interested in the idea of having someone do a book on the 90s Knicks because people are really, really fervent about that team in New York still because they haven't had much to cheer for since then. Um, and as you saw during The Last Dance and the documentary, I think there is some nostalgia for those 90s teams and the NBA generally, let alone the Knicks, which were one of the biggest teams during that era. And so it was a matter of uh, my literary agent trying to find uh, someone that could do a good job on a Knicks book and someone that hopefully had some experience writing about the Knicks at one time or another. So he kind of went on the hunt for somebody and he had heard my name repeatedly as a guy that people thought might do a good job. And that was how I ended up kind of being the person as that he, he asked me what I do. It. And I thought about it, said no twice and um, then thought about it more. I was like, you know, I don't have children. I'm not married. Um, I do want to do a book someday. This might be a good shot to do it. And me not having to come up with the idea on my own. And that was kind of how it played out. What sort of adjectives would you use to describe the the Knicks? It's obvious when you write a book about the Bulls or say the bad boy Pistons, well, they were they were champions. And then there are, you know, as Zach Lowe and other people have said, the, the critically acclaimed teams, the, the Nash Suns that revolutionized the league, the Chris Paul Clippers left their stamp even if they never made it to the finals. Now, I was kind of just grew up in the New York area. I was a Yankees fan. I was a Giants fan. Sure, I'll be a Knicks fan too. And then I was like, I don't think I like watching people playing football on a basketball court. So as soon as, the, and I grew up in New Jersey. So as soon as the Nets all I needed was like a Keith Van Horn and a Kerry Kittles to jump to jump ship. So I, I always, which wasn't much, you know, but but it was enough. Right. I mean, they're not 
a tragedy because they weren't likable. To, to have a tragedy, these be people that liked that couldn't get over the hump. They were largely unlikable, I think, objectively speaking, unless you appreciated a bruising style of basketball. I mean, there's almost something... Shakespearean. There are so many things. When I think about the great gut punch moments in the NBA in my lifetime, uh, the Reggie Miller choke gestures, the Charles Smith series of layups, John Stark, in rereading your book, I'm like, oh, I always thought John Stark went two for 18. It was three for 18. No, there was a three for 18 and a two for 18. There was Ewing's knees and wrists betraying him. There were like, what adjectives? do you use to describe why is this team meaningful and worthy of documenting? So I've got to think about the adjective question, which one I would use. Um, so I, I, I think your interpretation of them is interesting. And then certainly people are welcome to, to feel however they feel about them. Uh, I, I, I think you did hit the nail on the head with one thing that you weren't going to like them unless that was kind of your thing to watch people bludgeon people. I think even when you take that part of it out, that was certainly the thing that, you know, if I had to describe them one way, they did a whole lot of that. Um, and even in an excerpt that I'll, you know, that I'll have that goes up next week when the book comes out, uh, you know, I kind of make the point of saying, if you had to define them with one play, it's not the start stunk. It's not, you know, the Patrick Ewing baseline jumper that he took for years and years and years, probably hit hundreds, thousands of them. Um, it's not, the Larry Johnson four point play, it's not, it's for damn sure not going to be an offensive play at all because like they didn't have any, um, it was going to be defense. And there's one play that stands out to me that people probably have never even seen before, unless you're watching that game live. And if you did, you might not remember it, but it was a play where Reggie Miller was on the wing cutting toward the basket. Rick, Rick Smith was throwing a pass to him from the top of the key. And before Reggie Miller could catch the ball in the paint, uh, cutting toward the basket, Oakley stepped up and saw him coming and essentially laid him out the way a defensive back would lay out a wide receiver, um, except it would have been called pass interference in, you know, in college football because you, or, you know, pro football because you can't hit someone before they catch the ball um, or before they touch the ball. Oakley, you know, laid out a shoulder and Reggie Miller went flying and the play was so physically aggressive that the referees were either too thrown off by how physical it was to call a foul, which they did not call. Um, but then also like the ball did hit off Reggie Miller's hand very clearly. And the refs didn't call it out of bounds on the Pacers. They called it out of bounds on the Knicks. And it was fascinating because Marv Albert is calling the game. He says, Whoa, on the broadcast. And, you know, everybody saw that it was off of Reggie Miller but the announcer points out during game, he's like, oh, wow, they're giving the ball back to the Pacers, even though it seemed to hit Reggie Miller's hand. And it's like, yeah, it did. And, yeah, it was very clearly off of the Pacers. It was also very clearly a foul. But because they didn't call it, it was almost like the refs either had pity for Reggie Miller, that they just gave them the ball back, or that they were too dumbfounded to realize what actually happened and none of them blew the whistle. And that play in particular, Donnie Walsh, the Pacers general manager, who later would become the Knicks general manager, said, I remember watching that play and I remember being completely amazed at how the refs were like almost too flustered to know what to do. Like that's how physical this team was. And that very moment I'd made up my mind as the general manager of the Pacers, we're going to go out this offseason and get two guys exactly like that 
because the referees don't even know how to call stuff when players do stuff like that. Like they're so thrown off their game. And if you can do that legally and the refs like aren't even going to call a foul, like you need to just get more people like that. Otherwise you're going to get beat up all game. So that's, it's not an adjective, but like, that's what I think about. They were just so relentless physically. Um, and, you know, and, and what I would say to your question before, with your interpretation of them before, yes, there was a physical dominance in the way they played and a physical almost oppression in the way they played, which is not necessarily fun to watch. They're not going to be your favorite team if you're not a Knicks fan. What I would say, they did also play really hard. Like, you know, I think you could like a team like that, that you look at them and they don't have the talent that the Bulls have. They don't have the talent that the Suns have. They don't have the talent that the Sonics have, the Jazz have. But they're winning as much as everybody else that's in that conversation, if not more, with less talent. Yes, they're doing some stuff that either steps on the line or steps all the way over it. But they're basically taking what the league is allowing and maybe stretching it a little bit. But they're getting the very most out of their talent, which isn't that much relative to the good teams in the league. Um, and they are diving on the floor and they are hustling. And they're, you know, I, I had trainers from the Knicks tell me that they wouldn't seat their family members anywhere near the court, even when they could get tickets that good from the team, because they were like, it, it was actually a risk to do it because Charles Oakley would go flying into the stands two and three times a game. There was a time where Charles Oakley knocked out Patrick Ewing's wife doing that, um, going for a ball. There was a time Charles Oakley essentially sent one of his coaches to the hospital diving after a ball and kind of knocking the ball into his coach's nether regions where the sun doesn't shine. It actually might have saved the coach's life because the, you know when the coach had to go get checked by a urologist, the urologist said, did you know that you have a growth here? And he had a cancerous growth there that they caught early. So, I mean... I don't know. That's a side, I guess. But my whole point is that I think you, I, I think fans could be capable of liking them and loving them for saying that this is a team that punches way above its weight Yeah. because they just don't have the talent of these other teams, but they're going to get the very most out of what they have. Sometimes by being a little bit dirty, there's no question about that. I'm not running away from that, denying that. I'm not praising that they were dirty either at times, um, but they certainly outworked a lot of teams too. And they were, unbelievably conditioned physically probably too much to the point that it broke them down a little bit, but they, I mean, they were diving all over the floor. Derek Harper told me he remembered his first practice as a Nick. He came over from a horrible Mavericks team and he remembers very vividly going after a ball that was going out of bounds. He just kind of bent down to get it to keep the scrimmage going. And before he could do that, Anthony Mason and Charles Oakley were both diving at his feet before he could reach down to grab the ball. He was like, okay, I'm not working hard enough. Because this is how they practice. And I don't even play like that in games. This is how they practice. You know, so I, I do think there was something to be said for the fact that they resonated with a group of people that kind of, kind of the upstart, you know, underdog a little bit. Um, they had some talent, but it, it certainly was not nearly what other teams had. And I think that there was something to be said for that. Sure. Ag agreed. And in terms of that, the the, the talent or the team building did you talk to anybody who was involved with the team then who expressed some regrets about that? Because in, in, in New York, we would talk about all of these, well, nobody can get past Michael Jordan, or if Ewing could do this. Or And when it comes down to it, look, I'm not a huge John Starks fan, but John Starks is an amazing, amazing NBA story. 
um, he probably projected as a classic sixth man of the year candidate. I, I think you could make the case that had they won a championship, like, I, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of a lesser number two. He did win it. He, he, he won the award. Um, mm -hmm. you're, you're saying, I'm saying that, relative to... I'm saying that if you look at the other teams that have won championships really throughout my lifetime, sure. I can't think of a number two on those teams that, oh, that, I, yeah, that yeah. I wouldn't take I ahead of John Stark. That's not John Stark's fault. But and, and granted, I agree with you eventually they got Alan Houston. But in talking about where did it go wrong, did Pat Riley work us too hard? It's like, sure. what about if you had just gotten a shooting guard? <laughs> no, 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 no. You're you're totally right. I I, I miss I, I was misinterpreting where you were going with that. No, I mean I I had this conversation with someone else today, and, and the problem with that even go one step further, he wasn't even really their number two when they needed him most. He was their number one in that final series. In 94, because Patrick Ewing was getting basically swallowed whole by Hakeem Olajuwon. Couldn't score on him. Hakeem was a two-time reigning defensive player of the year, the league MVP that year. He he couldn't score on him. And so at that point, you know, and John Starks was just kind of wired this way. I made a point and referencing m multiple times in the book. He didn't really have the most refined basketball education. And I was trying to find the nicest way to put it. Uh you know, because I don't think it's an IQ thing as much as it's just like, how can you expect someone's basketball IQ to be very high when you don't play organized basketball for a long time? Like he played one year of high school ball. He played at four different schools, three of which were community colleges. One year of major college basketball was undrafted, six foot two, but was listed at six foot five. Um, he was a guy that was a talented scorer who was, you know, athletic, certainly, but just wasn't. There was a lot of stuff missing there. He was an imperfect player, an undersized imperfect player. Um, and they basically needed him to play the role of like a number one guy because Ewing just was awful offensively in that series and just didn't have anything for Kim Olajuwon. So I, you're completely right from that standpoint. I actually was, somebody asked me earlier today, is there anybody Starks reminds you of? And like, who who would be like one of his best comps in NBA history? of like key guys. And I was like, I don't, can't imagine who exactly, like the one that comes to mind for me is probably more of a Vernon Maxwell from Houston. Uh, he played against him in the finals. He was, <laughs> didn't really feel like he was screwed all the way on sometimes. Uh, just kind of very emotional uh, from one moment to the next, but a streaky shooter, a really good player, really athletic player, a, a pretty decent defender. Um, and a guy that I think people kind of feared because he wasn't screwed on all the way. Um, but Vernon Maxwell wasn't asked to be the number two guy, you know, or at least not consistently. It was like, you kind of took what you got from him whenever you got it. Starks was clearly their second best player, but yeah, I mean, he, he, his qualities more resemble a microwave scorer, which you normally equate that with the sixth man. And I think you're totally right. In an ideal world, that was where you would have him. And that was what he started as before Pat Riley got there. Um, but he clearly became too important to really have him in that role. And they didn't have enough scoring to not have him in that role. And, uh, you know, it, it came back to bite them certainly in, in game seven where he, he didn't really know how to just kind of stop himself. And I've made this allusion a couple of times in, uh, in the book, he was someone that in, in, in different moments in his life, whenever he found himself in trouble, he always felt like he could keep digging and keep digging and keep digging until he could find his way out. If he got lost, which he did, you know, as an 11 year old trying to get back from school one day, 
if, if he got down really bad in a gambling session at a casino, he would keep playing until he could find the hot streak. And I think in that game seven, he just kept thinking that all I got to do is hit one of these and I'm, I'm going to be okay. And he just ran out of time. I mean, he couldn't, the hole got so deep and they only lost the game by six. And that was with them shooting two for 18, zero for 11 on threes. And, you know, some of that is on him. Certainly a lot of it. Some of that is on Pat Riley and Pat Riley could have pulled him. You know, I, I had a pretty clear takeaway that hasn't been out there before about maybe why he didn't pull him. Yeah. Um, I found that know, very interesting. Yeah. So I didn't to put it this way. I, didn't I, don't, intend to, I don't want to spoil the entire sure. book, but put it put it this way. Let's just say there was a guy on the okay, let's just say I can't believe I remember all these names off the top of my head. Let's just say John McNamara didn't put Dave Stapleton in for defense and the ball went through Bill Buckner's legs. And then John McNamara subsequently wrote numerous unanswered letters to the backup first baseman, you might safely infer from that that there was a backstory there and some animosity and perhaps some personal issues that informed professional decisions. Yeah, uh, it it feels that way. Now, I know Riley was a guy that liked writing handwritten letters. I can't imagine that you write multiple letters when you're not getting any response or hearing back from the person. It felt like there were some feelings there. I tried not to dig in too hard on the player in question just to kind of let him have some element of privacy, but I mean, he told me that, you know, that Pat had written the letters to him. Um, you know, like you said, you won't give it away, so I won't either, but, uh, but Pat could have made different decisions there. Even people that respected Pat kind of, you know, deified Pat, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, you know, Red Holzman was just a massive Pat Riley fan who never questioned anything Pat Riley did, thought everything Pat did was right. But the people sitting next to Red Holzman during that game seven were like, Maybe this would be a good time to pull John Starks out of the game because, like, he just doesn't have it. Doesn't mean you have to bench him the rest of the game, but even if it's just for two minutes. Because, you know, and, and I think in fairness to Pat, John Starks had shot 45% from games two to six overall. I'm sorry, 50%, 45% from three. Uh, he was averaging like 21 points a game, seven assists per game in that final series from games two to six. He had three double-digit fourth quarters in a row in games four, five, and six. He would have won game six on the last shot of the game if, well, I won't say if if the shot doesn't get blocked, but he had made six shots in a row leading into the last play of the game in which he took the last shot. And Hakeem Olajuwon grazed it with the fingernail to send the shot offline. It might have gone in. If it goes in, the Knicks win that title in six games. There is no game seven. So I understand Pat's rationale for believing that John would come through, but I don't know that it means that you can't pull him at all when he clearly is off and like clearly is the shots were getting more and more off. And the fact that Pat wouldn't pull him, um, like you said, won't give it away, but there, you know, the fact that there are some players that believe that there was more to why he didn't pull John from that game is, is just still mind blowing to me. And it also tells you like, even if that wasn't the reason, that Pat pulled him, the fact that players think that there was an ulterior motive there potentially tells you about the way that the players thought about Pat Riley's mindset as well. Yeah, no, that's something I really wanted to ask you about. I would say the players, as you portray them in the book, in very few ways did they surprise me. You, they, they were illuminated for me, but they seemed like kind of the guys I thought they were. 
the Pat Riley that we've always received as fans through the media and uh, through announcers has been deified, and with good reason. The guy's had so much success in a variety of styles in a bunch of different big markets. But what I got from your book was not just with the Knicks, but also the Lakers preceding that. Mm -hmm. A guy who within his locker rooms was maybe perceived as a little bit more human than the rest of us on the outside were seeing him. Is that fair to say? That Riley was more human? Yeah, that, that he was in, in the way that every human being is a bit of a mixed bag. There's good and there's oh, bad. Oh, okay. No, no, not no. To, I, not, not, not to say I, I, that, the, that Magic Johnson was glad to see that bum go, but that they had their reservations <laughs> about Pat Riley, and so did Knicks players. Oh, no, no, no. Okay, when you said human, I thought you meant like down-to-earth normal. No. I was like, that's not the way I would describe him. You mean like flawed. Yeah, yes, flawed. Very, very human in that way, and uh, I mean... I, I would say that I went in knowing that Pat Riley, you know, if we talk about the, the multitude of guys that the Knicks had that like weren't screwed on all the way that, uh, you know, a piece was like kind of loose at the end after the assembly, Pat Riley was probably someone I would have ranked near the top of that list of just my perception of the way he was, because I'd heard stories already. And then it was like reporting out. There's so many more stories than what you realize. And yeah, I mean, there's certain stuff that just would not fly in today's NBA, you know, I start with one of the earliest ones in the book. The fact that Pat Riley, when he took the job, essentially took a wrecking ball to certain systems that they had in place with the Knicks were like, who could travel with the team? Who could have proximity to players? Who could watch practice? Like, not letting your scouts watch practice when they're in town um, and without advanced written notice. Not letting your team psychologist work with the players like that could not exist in today's NBA that claims to care about mental health. Like you couldn't have that. This was a team psychologist that had been there for years that already was working with these players and then was essentially told we'll no longer need your services as it relates to the Knicks roster. Like that's kind of crazy. And it's all kind of built in this mindset of wanting Pat's voice to be the only voice in the room or Pat wanting it that way. Which, how do I say this without being too dramatic with it? It's 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 a little bit of a scary mentality. A little bit. It's, again, it might be a little strong when I use the word scary, but like, you, you should be able to let people interact with other folks, like without worrying that somehow you're going to be betrayed by the team psychologist. Like, it, your team may need the help psych psychologically particularly dealing with certain things that you're telling them and that you're kind of saying to them. Sometimes I have a whole rundown on the way that Riley interacts with Charles Smith. That was less than healthy at times yes. uh, and potentially psychologically damaging at times. So the idea that you want to be the only voice in the room, but you're kind of sending signals that you're displeased or that you're concerned when your players want to pray before the game yeah. or that you're making comments to your players about the fact that, it's weird to you that they they have a Bible in your presence, you know, on their plane seat. Like, it's a little bit scary to me when you feel like these things threaten someone's ability to be good at basketball. Like, he never outright said that, but that was the perception that the players had, was that they couldn't have interactions with certain people, that they were concerned, that Pat was concerned about if they prayed regularly before games and if they were too wrapped up in the Bible – that it would somehow make them weaker physically or that they wouldn't play as hard during the game, that it would take off a certain edge that he wanted them to have during games. So, I mean, Pat was 
certainly human. I mean, but didn't want people to know that. No. Uh, you know, didn't want people to know that he would smoke, you know, when he was really stressed out behind closed doors, you know. So just a very, very different sort of guy. I mean, still a brilliant coach. But I, the way I would describe it is that it, he couldn't exist in that way now at all. Um, I don't care how effective you are as a coach, couldn't exist that way. There are certain things that he would get in trouble for that the league would just strike down. But also, it, it makes more sense when you read a lot of that stuff in the context that I presented, why he only lasted four years in New York. I don't think he could have lasted a very long time. Or if he could have, it would have had to have been in like a dual role where he eventually could have transitioned into management the way he did with Miami. Because, I mean, he was going to burn out real quick or he was going to burn out his players real quick. And I think he was already starting to. The clashes with Anthony Mason and suspending him twice in a two-year span, the blow-up with Doc Rivers, the fact that his players that were very good friends, in some cases John Starks, Patrick Ewing, the fact that they were starting to get into it with each other, um, the, the team was coming apart a little bit towards the end of Pat Riley's run there. Um, and Pat was starting to, when you go back and read some of his comments back then, he was starting to talk about how players were kind of getting too big for their britches and like player empowerment was getting out of control. So he was starting to kind of see athletes as overly privileged and not grateful and not listening and taking on too many interests that weren't related to basketball. And you could just kind of tell that there was going to be a dissonance there if he stayed for too much longer, um, at least without an ownership stake or without some of the things he wanted that maybe would have had him ease up a little bit. But his paranoia, he wasn't going to last very long in New York. I know people wanted him to stay. He clearly got the best out of them and, you know, very, very nearly won it without having the most talented roster in any year, in my opinion. But uh, it just kind of seemed like stuff was wearing thin by the end. Oh, it definitely felt like by the time it was done, it was done and it was time for 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 a reboot. Who did you most enjoy talking to um, for this book? And, and also, who did you most want to talk to that you weren't able to? Did, did you speak to Patrick Ewing at all? on the record about this book long story i i did not um i i, I met him and told him i would be doing the book he seemed i won't say excited because i don't you know i don't know why he'd be excited about this been written about before but he seemed happy to talk and fine with talking there was i wouldn't say a misstep that i made i think it was a strategic way i went about trying to do the book as to why i think i didn't get him long story short i I had been in contact with uh, Georgetown, which is what he suggested I do to get in touch with them. Georgetown was playing ball, going back and forth with me about it. Um, finally, uh, they said, we can get him for you after the season. You just got to wait for the season to conclude. He's kind of wrapped up and, in, in, you know, obviously very busy during the NCAA season. I understood that. Um, I used the first year, solid year, maybe even almost a year and a half, talking to lower level people within the organization, people that were in training camp for two, three days before getting cut, people that were support staffers, secretaries to the executives, marketing people, community outreach people, people that did, you know, sat at the scores table and, you know, input statistics, you name it. I talked to virtually everybody. I also talked to people that were involved with the dance team that was formulated uh, during those years. The Nick um, City Dancers? Yes. Um, so they, they formed the Nick City Dancers, or I'm not sure if they're called that, but the Nick's dance team, they formed that group in 1991. At the same time, Pat Riley came over. It's probably related. 
that they'd had the Lakers, Laker girls, you know, and Pat Riley either wanting that or the team president at the time saying, essentially, he told me, look, we were worried that the Knicks weren't going to be good that first year Pat came by. And we worried that people were going to kind of revolt because we just brought in Pat Riley. What if we're not good in year one? We need to distract the fans with something. So they wanted to have dancers. They got dancers. Everything was fine. Eventually, everything was not completely fine because even though there was a guideline that said that dancers aren't allowed to fraternize with players, Patrick Ewing had an affair with the team dancer um, in 1997, 98, I think. So within that, um, I, you know, I, I asked members of the dance team and I asked the person that started the dance team. I said, you know, got a number of questions for you. We spent about 25, 30 minutes on the formulation of the dance team, the formation of the dance team, um, how it started, why it started, what it was like, what the audition process was like. I, I genuinely want to know these things. Like this is all useful for my background re research writing some of the stuff in the book. Some of the stuff did end up in the book. But eventually I start pivoting away because I have to ask difficult questions too. And I said, okay, you know, now I've got to ask a couple questions, a little bit more uncomfortable. But, um, you know, I, obviously there are guidelines, like probably with any team, about the dancers having relationships with players. Seems like that didn't always actually happen as far as people holding to those guidelines because obviously, you know, there's been stuff out there before. Um was it a common thing? Like, did everybody on the team know about it? And I could immediately sense the person I was speaking to clam up about it. And she did answer the first question. And then I said, okay, now more specifically, as it relates to Patrick. And she stopped me and she said, I just should tell you, you know, I totally get you have a job to do. I could tell that it seems like you have a genuine interest in the other stuff about the dance team. Uh, so it doesn't feel like you called me just for that reason to ask about Patrick, but Patrick and I are good friends. Uh, he actually introduced me to my current husband. Um, and I'm a very private person. And Patrick was one of four people at our wedding. We're so tight with them that we actually waited until Patrick in Orlando, when Patrick was coaching there as an assistant, came into the New Jersey, New York area for a game on a weekend that they had in New York. We waited to have our wedding until he was in town so that he could be there. That's how tight I am with Patrick. Meaning, basically, and I took this to mean, I'm not answering your question about his affair with the dancer, one, but two, and this is the way I took it, she didn't say this, I'm going to be telling Patrick that this is your line of questioning, so if you don't end up speaking to him, be prepared for that. So, Georgetown had been in contact with me regularly about setting up interviews with Patrick, and then stuff went radio silent after that. Mm. Um, I didn't realize that this person had a close relationship with Patrick. And based on that, if I'd known that, I would have either not asked her that question or I would have waited to do it or I would have tried to interview Patrick first and then, you know, talk to Patrick about all the other information that I need and then go back to him when I need to nail down certain details about that stuff. But, you know, it's a book about everything. Yeah. It, you know, it's not like I'm not proud or that I'm somehow ashamed that I was asking a question that could be perceived to be revealing in some sort of other way. I mean, that's human stuff. It's it's real life. Um you know, I, I do write about that portion of Patrick's life. I don't think I do it super scandalously or, or uh, inappropriately. It's also pretty public knowledge that the affair happened. Yeah. So it's not, you know, I, I, I legitimately just wanted to know how does an affair like that happen? Because obviously eyes are on both groups of people, the star athlete and the dancer. Mm -hmm. um, so how do they meet up? How do they link up? And 
I asked around enough to other people and they're like, oh yeah, no, the, the, you know, the ball boys send notes between the dancers and the players. And I was like, okay, that was what I wanted to know more or less. Uh, you know, so it wasn't that complicated of a thing, but I understood that she didn't want to answer it. And uh, so I think that's why I ended up not getting Patrick quite frankly. And, and that's a shame because obviously that's salacious. Salacious. It might've been good for a bit of, you know, Twitter gossip for, a second, but the story of the Knicks of the nineties, if it's about any one person more than anyone else, it's the story of Patrick Ewing. And I always got the impression as somebody who read a lot of sports writing around the New York sports writing that Patrick was always, um, aloof is a word that I would use in the way that he dealt with the media. And he seemed to think in a way that maybe Derek Jeter had more success with of, I'm just going to you know, stick to the facts and give you the right quote, and that'll be the end of it. And they would every now and again they would let it slip. You should see this guy in practice. He's actually very funny. He's very silly, joking. He's warm with people, and that's just he's decided his persona is going to be a little bit more corporate than that, I guess. Because it wasn't unlikable. It was just aloof and a book. You're talking about Jeter. Well, no, I, I'm both of them. I'm I'm saying that I, Jeter okay. Jeter pretty much did the same thing that Ewing did, only. Jeter was liked and respected for it. Ewing didn't seem to be able to land it in quite the same way. My point is he was not an unlikable player. I would not say that. The Anthony Mason people may not have liked Oakley. People didn't put Ewing in that category. They just felt like they didn't know him. And apparently there is a fun, warm side to him. And this book would have been a really, really good opportunity for him to let that side of him inform how that that team is perceived yeah and i, I think I, I tried to get at some of that mm -hmm. um I, you know i don't think he's the the biggest like huggiest warmest guy i think that's it's it's that frostiness that you're describing a little bit his his thought out a little bit i think because he's had to be such a public face at georgetown yeah. um i certainly went to great lengths to try to explain why patrick maybe wasn't wired like that I mean, he, the guy dealt with a ton of racism um, in high school, you know, not even college, but high school where they're throwing bricks through this young boys uh, school bus, this dominant high school basketball team that has black players on it. Um, you know, Mike Jarvis, bless his heart, I think was trying to do the right thing. Patrick came over from Jamaica, um, still had a very strong Jamaican accent was a little bit behind from a reading standpoint, just trying to pick up, you know, the language and how to pronounce things and everything like that. And Mike Jarvis, as Patrick was dominating the high school level and basically every school in America wanted a piece of Patrick Ewing, Mike Jarvis kind of laid out almost like a 10 point plan of all the things Patrick would need at whatever school he went to. And he put on that list that he would potentially need extra academic help, which made Patrick out to be kind of slow. And I don't think that was what Mike Jarvis intended, but that was the way it started to be painted, particularly by schools that realized they had no shot at getting Patrick. So they started bad mouthing him. So that, I mean, that perception was out there. I think there's already a perception that exists about big men, you know, relative to guards and as far as intelligence. Um, and not to mention that when he got to the big East and, you know, he was playing high school ball outside of Boston and, you know, suburban Boston, Boston proper was extremely problematic then. I would even say now a lot of black people would tell you that it's maybe not their cup of tea as far as spending a whole lot of time there because it's just it, it, it has a certain hostility to it or it can in a way that 
you know, frankly, a lot of white people don't recognize or appreciate. Um, and I, I have thoughts as to why that is, but it's, it just in the seventies certainly was, was really not the most welcoming atmosphere, you know, as you were just starting to integrate busing and, and, you know, stuff like that. So anyway, you know, Patrick dealt with all of that. And, you know, I make a point in the book at, at one stage to, uh, I quote Bill Russell's daughter, and she went to school with Patrick at Georgetown at the same time. And she was saying, so much of what I'm watching with what Patrick faces is the same. Uh, and the fact that he's from Boston and the fact that he's a big man and the fact that he's uber talented, so much of what he's facing is what I watched my dad go through, which is like a really harrowing sort of thing to say, considering that this was something that she was saying in like the early 1980s. Like it's not that long ago, um, but throwing banana peels at this man holding up signs in the crowd at Big East games saying, Ewing can't read this and spelling the words wrong. Um, just real ugly. And so all that stuff, I imagine, played a role in him being really guarded, really protected. His family was kind of guarded and protective by nature anyway. John Thompson was very protective of Patrick Ewing for some of those reasons. I also think part of that informed why Patrick wanted to go to Georgetown was, you know, he saw a strong black man who pushed back very hard against kind of this racist stuff and would not stand for it. Um, but I think that's why he was the way he was. And, you know, and I think going to New York, you know, there's no shortage of media there, but he didn't trust people because the media had kind of already, I won't say the media by itself, but like people had not been particularly kind to Patrick Ewing. Um, and so he, I think he was a little bit slower to trust people. Um, but what everybody will tell you in New York, the reporters, first of all, they'll say there was a little bit of a warmness to him. Sometimes it would come through. Um, he was kind of grumpy in a way that kind of was like a, almost like someone that has like a keep away sign on their lawn or something. But then if you actually did step on his lawn, he wasn't going to hit you or be mean to you. Uh, one person I talked to for the book said that he stepped on Patrick's foot at one point, which was always a risk because that locker room was so tight and Patrick had enormous feet and long legs and, you know, people would have to walk around him to get to the other players at one time it happened. And he just essentially patted the reporter on the shoulder and, and just said, I know you didn't try to do it. So he was, you know, did that. And a different person told me that he gave a ton of money to him, another player. So, you know, someone that was well paid just by relative standards. His wife had brain cancer and Patrick just kind of came out of pocket for six figures to pay for it, him and Jeff Van Gundy. So, you know, you take his team, his whole team to Jamaica during the offseason one year. I mean, he, he had a warmth to him. He pulled a practical joke on a reporter during um, – I didn't have this in the book, uh, but he – a practical joke on a reporter on um, – what's the name of the day? The, the the day where you have the April, April Fool's. Fools. Don't worry. We, um, we both got COVID brain. We're going to get through this together. Yeah, goodness. Um, April Fool's Day, he, he – well, let me not give away the whole punchline, but there's a reporter that walks in one day. Uh, the Knicks are playing in Cleveland. One of the Cleveland cheerleaders, the Cavs cheerleaders, says, aren't you Mike Wise from the New York Times? And he says, yeah. She said, I'm such a big fan of your work. And, you know, it's a gorgeous uh, cheerleader, you know, from a different city. So he's like, well, thank you. And, you know, he's telling all his reporter buddies, like, what happened. Some of them saw it happen. And so he's sitting there thinking about that the whole game. And after the game's over, like, he kind of works up the courage. He's like, well, she said she likes my work. Like, let me go see if maybe, you know, she'd like to talk if I could have a phone number. And she just completely, 
like wrote him off, you know, after the game was over, like didn't even give him the time of day. And Patrick saw all of it and was like April Fool's buddy. <laughs> like he had a, a warm side, but you had to know him for it to come across. He had to trust you for it to come across. So it generally wasn't happening with reporters because he kind of came up not trusting them based on what happened to him in high school and college and uh, the way things were framed in high school and college. And, you know, so he, he, he could be warm. He certainly was warm with teammates. His coaches swear by him. Yes, they do. Um, and I think it's part of the reason they go to bat for him so hard when it came to these coaching jobs that he kept getting passed over for. Um, but I, I think there was more to him. And I think that he did have a warmth. I just think I do agree with you, though, that it wasn't he didn't wear his heart on his sleeve. And I think it did hurt him sometimes with fans that probably loved John Starks more and Charles Oakley more and Anthony Mason more just because even if you didn't always like them or if they didn't always say or do the right thing, you at least knew that they were playing really hard and that they loved the city of New York, that they're going to give everything they had. Patrick Ewing was a lot more reserved in what he thought and what he's actually said out loud. And um, Patrick was always by far the best player on the team, but the other guys were a lot more emotionally connected to the fans and to the city. And Patrick hated signing autographs and Anthony Mason kind of disliked Patrick Ewing because he wouldn't sign autographs. So there was also like that lack of connection with the fans from him. Whereas all the other guys were happy to sit and talk with fans, hang with fans. Anthony Mason sat in the crowd one game when he was suspended and sat and watched the Knicks game from the third deck and fans loved it. And we're like giving the guy a standing ovation for sitting in the crowd that night. Patrick Ewing never would have done anything like that. No, no, no. Speaking of Ewing, I, I have two dumb questions i i made it about halfway the, through the book apologies if you address this in greater detail later on you talked about the sure. knicks winning the ewing lottery and you use the word controversial one word keep on trucking i'm not going <laughs> to ask you what you think have you ever met anybody who is respected or employed in league circles who actually thinks there was a frozen envelope that david stern pulled out uh, you get a lot of people in the media that think it. I'm not sure anybody in league circles specifically thinks it. Mm -hmm. If they have, they don't say it. It's kind of like a dirty word. Specifically, people that work for the league, meaning like not for a team, but like they are employed specifically by the NBA league office. No, of course, they, they no, but, 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 team, but, but team officials, not some guy on Twitter. Have you ever met somebody who works for a team? Not, goes, not that I know okay. of. Not anybody that like swears by it. Now, you will find there were people... That And I, I want to say, I don't think I got this from my own reporting, but I want to say, I can't remember who it was, but there was someone from sports, I should know this, I guess it was before I was in sports social that wrote a really, really good piece on the Ewing lottery. And I think quoted someone, maybe the Hawks owner, or maybe someone that was like with the Hawks at the time, the GM who said something like, told someone weeks in advance, I guarantee you the Knicks win the lottery. Uh, and it was like weeks in advance of the actual lottery, just kind of doing the math, saying like the league is at kind of a precarious spot where they're trying to grow the sport. Um, it's kind of hitting a little bit of a lull. You know, thank goodness they had Michael Jordan. But, you know, they, they, they had two or three teams that everybody really, really cared about. But New York, they couldn't jumpstart New York to save their lives. And so it was like, if we could only get New York involved, now we've got Chicago that's kind of relevant. The Lakers and the Celtics are relevant, but we don't have. And, and so even to the point where there were only, there was only one or two games a week that was televised nationally in the NBA at that time when Patrick Ewing got drafted. Um, and so the league really needed a jolt and a shot in the arm 
And so I think it was someone from the Hawks saying, I guarantee you that they're going to win the lottery just because the league needs it to happen that way. So nobody that I had on record, mm-hmm. but I feel like I have either seen yeah. someone on record before, or if not, somebody did tell me that over the course of my reporting. We're like, they're like, oh, no, no, it was somebody out there thought this. And then when it happened, they're like, what did I tell you? I see. Um, so there were, there were some thoughts about it, but I mean, there's no question. And, you know, I, part of the reason I didn't spend that much time on it is because I didn't have new insight. I wasn't going to, I don't like to spend a whole lot of time on stuff that's already established. I feel like people do know it. If it's controversial and you don't know why it's controversial and you're reading the book, you're probably going to stop and say, what was controversial about? And maybe that's a little bit annoying that I don't go into greater detail about it, but I was really determined. I think you were saying you've made it about halfway through. Mm -hmm. I tell Ewing's story at the end of the book, basically, I would say 80% of the way through the book, which is really backwards from the way most biographies read. When you have your superstar player, you normally spend a lot of time on them at the beginning. The reason I put Ewing at the end, close to the end, was that to me, if you ask me who the biggest star in the book is, the person that's most central to everything that happens with this team, I think it's Pat Riley, not Patrick Ewing, number one. Because even when Riley left the Knicks, he still was an arch nemesis. And like they hated, and the players didn't hate him, but the fans did. The team hated the team he coached and built that team to be exactly like the Knicks. Yes. So it was like a mirror image. So to me, he was the most central person, but also from the time I start the book in 91 to 99 with the end of it, Riley was the new character in 91. Patrick Ewing had been there for five or six years already. So from where I sat, I was like, I don't need to belabor his story at the beginning because people already know why he was important. And I intertwined him and Riley at the beginning of the book and saying that Riley kind of held him there in New York because Ewing wanted out. To me, Ewing's more important chapter would be the one where everything was falling apart for him. Hence the extramarital affair, hence his wrist shattering in 1997, you know, the idea of him becoming the president of the players union, the fact that he was involved in something that would later become, you know, a a criminal case with regards to, um, you know, the strip club and like kind of paying for oral sex or whatever, those sorts of things, like his life kind of came crashing down in some ways. His marriage ended. He had an affair with the team dancer. And like his career was kind of in peril because he shattered his wrist at a pretty old age in the NBA. So to me, watching how his career starts coming apart at the seams is way more interesting than the idea of like, let's kind of do this obligatory chapter that we got to do at the beginning because Patrick Ewing matters a lot. And I remember having that conversation at length with my editor saying, I know this doesn't fit the normal premise of how this works within biographies. But I think it's a waste of time to tell Patrick's story here when it's more meaningful at this stage later in the book. Let's tell the other stories. Here. I enjoyed the, uh, I enjoyed the way that you staggered them and doled out the, the you know, rather than just going through the blow by blow of the individual seasons when you spent time with each individual player. I thought the way that you laid it out made a lot of sense. It was very artful, actually. Thank you. OK, one more incredibly cockamamie uh, conspiracy theory question. <laughs> Of course, no one's ever said this to you on the record. Have you ever met anybody whose opinion you respect, who, you know, doesn't cover the league, has worked with the league or with the team who believes that um, Michael Jordan received a soft suspension from basketball and that was for gambling and that was the real reason why he went and played baseball? Um, not really. And, and I, I, I think when you think about it, here's the reason I don't. I haven't met 
anybody that truly thinks that that is in the league. Yeah. But the, the the thing you got to keep in mind. So good example. The Knicks were the team that immediately replaced the Bulls as far as the team in the Eastern Conference that made the finals. The, the ratings are massive when the Bulls are involved in the finals during those Jordan years, uh, which is also what we see when the Warriors make the finals now. Um, they're, they're a dynasty. People pay attention. They they gravitate to superstars. People that don't care will care because a superstar is involved. Um, that's not true when you don't have the teams that everybody's used to, the superstars that everybody's used to. The Knicks didn't have superstars. They had one. You know, they had a, a very, very, very high-level star, maybe a superstar. And Ewing, Riley was there. But people don't watch games because of coaches. They watch them because of players. So even with two massive markets, New York and Houston, um, the ratings were, like, historically – the drop-off was historic as far as going from the Bulls finals to then the Knicks being in the finals not to mention that the OJ chase happens too so I say all that to say this it's not in the league's best interest like granted you don't want your player to just come tumbling down and have just like a you know a mental break or something like that um in the midst of a season or in the midst of a game or something have to happen you don't want Michael to suffer the fate that his father did because of something gambling related or anything like that um so of course there's like a, there could be a theory but the league stood to lose so much money by Michael not being involved. And what's interesting about it too, you know, so the league stood to lose money, but the league also, I mean, they recognized how valuable Michael was to the point where even, you know, to some extent, David Stern wasn't standing in the way of Michael making more money. Uh, I, I get into this answer a little bit later in the book too. There was the rumor and, you know, I guess there's some truth to it that, Michael Jordan tried to develop like a backroom situation with the Knicks. In 1996, he was a free agent. He'd been a baseball player for the, that year and a half. Um, he finally finishes his Bulls contract by 1996. But because he had been locked in like a five or six year deal or maybe eight year deal, I don't remember what it was. He had been vastly underpaid because the value of contracts had just shifted overnight because of Michael Jordan and all the TV money that flowed into the league. So he had gone from making like a couple million a year to then saying like, okay, my contract is up soon. I want a lot more money. And he basically set the Knicks up and said, I'd be interested in coming there if you guys could make it work. He wasn't ever really interested in going to New York. He said that to the Knicks so that he could have leverage from them to be able to force the Bulls hand to pay him more. And so basically he, his agent, David Falk kind of drummed up this, explanation that the Knicks were going to be able to pay Michael was it 15 million or 20 million a year and Michael was like you guys have you guys are on the clock Chicago you've got 24 hours maybe two days if, if I'm feeling kind to meet that or exceed it or else I'm going to New York and you're not going to be able to explain this to your fans like they're going to pay me 20 25 million a year potentially because they they're New York they've got all the money they're owned by a massive corporation. They're owned by Sheraton. They can give me hotel commercials. Like I can get paid forever. And you guys are just going to watch me walk away to the rival. And essentially what the thought was is that the Bulls wanted to complain to David Stern about the fact that like he shouldn't be allowed to do that. He shouldn't be able to take money that's not salary cap money. He's circumventing the salary cap by taking money from a hotel deal. And essentially the, the story went that like David Stern 
said he wasn't going to say it was illegal. He wasn't going to say no, mostly because I think David Stern was a capitalist, but probably more than anything else, David Stern wasn't looking to get Michael Jordan paid less. He wanted him to break the bank because that was good for Michael. It was good for the sport. And quite frankly, he probably knew that the Bulls would pony up and pay the money. And by the way, the Bulls gave Michael an unprecedented $30 million a year deal for one year, uh, which I mean, like was basically more than some teams were paying for their whole roster. Michael got that in one year. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't completely buy the idea that, uh, that the league would have needed him gone because I just feel like there was too much money lost from the lack of interest that you otherwise would have had, even when you had a big market like the Knicks and the Rockets in the finals, you know, that finals just fell off the table as far as relative to what it had been the year before with the Bulls. Uh, so I don't quite buy that. I, I, I understand it in theory, but I think it's, it's a sexy theory that I don't think is actually accurate. Yeah, most 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 fun conspiracy theories don't actually hold much weight when it comes down to it, unfortunately. Uh, kind sure. of a, a final question, you know, in talking to all of the players and coaches who were around and involved with the team during this era, where are they with the legacy? Do they feel like they were part of a team that didn't quite get where it was supposed to go? Are they happy with what they did manage to achieve? Um. You know, I think the last line of my book kind of ties that together. I can't remember exactly how I phrased it, but I said something about how um, that they they were so close to being immortalized by winning the title. And I think the biggest part of their story, the beginning of the decade, kind of closed out and, you know, closed off from winning a title by one dynasty. And then in 1999, they make it back to the finals and lose to the Spurs, which would essentially become another dynasty. So they were consistently finishing in second place. You know, they constantly were kind of in a situation where the clock kept, you know, hitting midnight each time that they tried to be Cinderella. Um, and that that takes a toll on you, that it, it kind of tortures your soul a little bit. And it definitely ate away at people. You got the impression that it kind of ruined Charles Smith a little bit psychologically. Um and, you know, this is a team that broke hearts, broke bones, had the tortured soul. But I get the impression that if you talk to most of those guys, Oakley, Ewing, you know, Mason's not here anymore, but I feel like he probably would have said it too, that they would gladly do it again just to relive that glory because the, the fan base loved them that much and because they were that close. I think they stood for something to a lot of people. Um, and I think that they would gladly relive it even without the titles because it's been a long time since basketball's mattered that much to New Yorkers, a long time. And, you know, a lot of those guys never won anything as far as a title. Um, but, you know, those were glory days for them. I mean, they were rock stars. They were beloved. Um, and I, don't, I also don't think there's anything to be ashamed of uh, from where I sit, but probably even more so from those players, when six of those titles go to the same man and the same team in one decade, like nobody beat them. Uh, during that run and the fact that I think it speaks volumes that the first time Michael Jordan retired the Knicks immediately went to the finals and then the second time he retired they went to the finals immediately then too like that tells you that they were next in line I just think they were blocked out by not even just an all-time great maybe the all-time great player uh, so I I don't think there are regrets I think they would have liked to have won it um, maybe Riley has a regret or two he said he does about the way he handled game seven and that play uh, or that decision and not pull starts. Uh, 
you know, I'm sure Starks has some regrets about that, but it's part of their story. And I think that in some ways it makes them more interesting. You know, I guess in my situation, the part of the reason they haven't had books written about them and documentaries done on them before is because they haven't won. If they had, then there would have been a ton of material on them. And there just hasn't been because normally the second place finishers don't get that sort of treatment, but they were fascinating personally. Mm-hmm. They were interesting as far as how close they got several times. I think the most fascinating thing about them, and we haven't talked about this at all, um, you can make the argument that they ended up having a greater impact on the way the league was shaped for years to come than the Bulls did during those years because they were so flagrant and so physical that the league basically said, we need to do away with this. And frankly, the rules changed because of the next several rules changed because of them. So the league would not be exactly where it is right now without the way the Knicks played and without the way that they kind of yeah. nod on the nerves of the league. And I think that that's vitally important. And also part of their story is that they, they really influenced a lot in the NBA, despite the fact that they weren't the team that dictated who won and lost. No, you, you can't, uh, you, 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 really rare. after all these years, you say hand check and, and a 1990s mix still kind of comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, the league, when they were changing that rule, they sit around um, the league's head disciplinarian and a couple of officials to each team's training camp for a two-week span. They were basically on tour, going from one team to the next um, in different regions. And they started with the Knicks, which is probably fitting. They were the first team that got a visit from the league. They put in VHS tapes to show what would no longer be allowed. And the first two, three minutes of the tape that they used was just Derek Harper hand checking the shit out of people. Um, and Derek Harper thought it was funny at first. And then as they showed more and more clips with him, he was like, okay, this isn't as funny anymore, but the Knicks looked at that and they felt like the league was developing an agenda against them. And it's interesting. Cause like, do I think that's what it was? No, not really. But I did have people from the league who worked for the league in very high ranking roles during those years. Tell me we weren't out to get the Knicks. No, the rules weren't, aimed directly at the Knicks? No. But to be fair, we did want to get rid of some of this stuff. And to be fair, the Knicks were at the forefront of what was wrong with some of this stuff. And so it probably did feel like to them, it was something that we were implementing because of them. It was that we didn't want it to spread, but it wasn't necessarily because of just them. But they're probably fair to feel that way because it probably did feel that way to them. And yeah, they were the team that was most associated with hand checking. They were the team that was most associated with flagrant fouls. Hell, Charles Oakley had more flagrant fouls than 15 teams by himself in one season. So, of course, that stuff was aimed at the Knicks, even if it wasn't, you know? And so it's interesting. Like, I don't think there was an agenda, so to speak, but the league was very clear on the fact. And what several people told me is that our main thing was we did not want physicality to become more important in the sport than skill. Of course. And the Knicks were getting really close to that line. And not just that, but remember what I told you at the beginning of the pod, the Pacers looked at what the Knicks did and said, we're going to do that too. Wow. And you didn't want there to be copycats in a style that could get people hurt and would turn people off, uh, viewers off. And uh, they wanted the league to be more about artistry and skill. And that was the direction they went in and look at what we have now. So, I mean, the the Knicks were unbelievably influential, even though they never won the whole thing. Um, and I think that's part of their story too. So I, I find them fascinating. I get that they weren't everybody's cup of tea, but, uh, 
but I don't think you had many teams like them. And I think that they're very, very worthy of, of a project like this, a, a deep dive. Like yeah, this. I, I absolutely agree. Obviously Knicks fans are going to enjoy this, but I saw congratulations. Spike Lee enjoyed your book immensely. I didn't know when he got that excited. He capitalizes every single word. That's really, really cool <laughs> that he was as excited Thank about you. your book on, on Instagram. But, but yeah, even if you weren't, um, I wasn't a fan but I think the the story has sort of um, like wine. It sort of matured with time, and you and you look back at it and you go, "Wow, that's it's almost hard to believe that this was the same league." It doesn't seem feel like a lot of years, but it, it you're same sport. Yeah, yeah, same sport. It, it just doesn't it doesn't even look like the same sport. And I think you know I've had people. I think there are some people that are assuming that my book is going to like praise the way they played. No, I'm not. I don't think there's anything in the book that I actively praise. I'm not. I'm more of a fly on the wall with the way I reported this out. Yeah. Uh, no, it's just it's just to show what it was like. And, you know, I had someone make a book trailer for me, kind of more like a movie trailer, quite frankly. And there's some of it, I, you know, my biggest hope for the book, aside from, you know, hopefully it becomes a bestseller. My biggest hope for it, though, is that someone takes it and and gets the film rights to it to make a documentary out of it. Because I kind of feel like there's a lot of it that you won't understand if you're of a certain age, you won't understand it until you see it. I, I I know I tried my best to explain it through words. I think I did a decent job of that. Hopefully it was a good job. But I feel like there's certain things that even with the writing don't quite come across unless you see it. And I do think that that would allow people to see it. Like, And then I think that trailer, to some extent, is three and a half minutes long, allows you to see how physical that team was, where they were hurting people. Not always trying to, but they were doing it. And it, it looked dirty at times. And sometimes it was sometimes, I mean, I've quoted Xavier McDaniel very early in the book. He was like, I tried to to take a good clean shot or good shot at Scotty Pippen every chance I got. He was open about the fact that he was trying to hurt people and did hurt. Some yes. People, I, I have the quote here. Anytime I got a good opportunity to give him a shot in the head, I wanted to do it. They weren't even like, not even just a shot, a shot in the yeah. head, you know? Uh, so, I mean, this was just a different time a different team. And uh, I do think there's something about kind of, like I said, I'm, it's not my way of trying to praise it. It's more me kind of putting it in a, in a museum and saying, look at this. Yep. And having people look at how different a time it was because you're not ever going to see that. Again. No, absolutely not. Well, I, I'm enjoying the book. I intend to finish it. I'm, I'm looking forward to the sequel on the Isaiah Thomas years, needless to say. I don't know if I'm going to handle that. <laughs> Somebody told me I should. And I was like, boy, you know, it's I, I, I started covering the Knicks in 2012. Um, and covered them through 2016 or so. I, I had one year, that first year, covering them where they won 54 games, were number two seed, which was kind of unexpectedly fun because I don't think anyone expected that that would happen. Um, and then I covered three teams in a row that did not make the playoffs and kind of felt more like the Knicks that we've come to know. And, you know, and some people love, but some people hate. I, I don't have an interest. I, I bet the stories are juicy, but I feel like when you've got juicy stories on a team that actually won, a decent amount you can mix in some bad stuff and some kind of crazy stuff and it's more enjoyable to me reading about a team that lost consistently could be entertaining but i think it's probably a lot harder because you're not building toward anything it's just kind of like this happened and then this happened and then this happened and it's kind of just more rooted and it's almost more of like a campfire thing than it is a book to me of like just telling these really funny crazy zany stories and like i'm not I'm not that kind of storyteller. So I have no interest in that. But people have told me, you got to do that. And I'm like, 
I just don't. I'm not that interested in it. I don't know. Maybe this is me. Uh, well, your work for now is done one way or another. The book is out next week, and people can pre-order it now. And, and I, I've worked on a few books, and I know that the amount of time that you spend working on it is so long compared to the amount of time that you get to talk to people about it and take a victory lap. So to the extent that you're able to, I hope you are enjoying the fact that this book finally exists and people can finally read it and finally get their hands on it. It's called Blood in the Garden, a flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. Chris Herring, thank you so much for your time. Mike, thanks so much for having me, man. I really appreciate you. 